Alas, the precious one of Urgen, Padmasambhava. The luminous circle of the sun which gave us light has gone. The crystal moon which relieved our suffering has disappeared. The stem of the plant containing the cure for our poisons has gone dry. The father has withdrawn his boundless compassion. The friend who saved us from the ocean of Sangsara has taken leave. The flame of the torch which dispelled the night of ignorance is extinguished. The support to which all our aspirations were directed is no more. Departed is Guru Padma, the adept of all methods. O oh Padma, in remembering your deeds our tears flow without end. Our breath has no room in our mouths. It fills our hearts. Our feet are no longer steady on the earth, and we roll on the ground. And I, Yeshet Sogyal, can no longer steady my thoughts. Padma is going away into the depths of space, and the whole land of Tibet has become empty, and all the disciples breathe out their sighs. Wherever they go, they remember Padma of Urgen, day and night, Whatever they do, they remember him. So this is from a, a short extract from a, a much longer song of intense longing and yearning by the great woman disciple of Padmasambhava, Yeshe Tsogyal. And this song concludes the testimonial record of Padma, the life and liberation of Padmasambhava. It's the song sung by her when Guru Padmasambhava left Tibet. And in this song, Yeshe Tsogyal expresses all the love and longing of a whole people, of an entire nation. We don't really know how long Padmasambhava spent in Tibet. Some accounts say it was only about a year. Others say it was much longer. But all the accounts agree that Padmasambhava and the Tibetans formed an incredibly strong bond, a bond of mutual love, of intense love. Padmasambhava's love is, of course, a bodhisattva's love, a Buddha's love. It's the overwhelming love of a spiritual friend. It's the love expressed in practical concern for the spiritual and temporal welfare of the Tibetan people. In general, and in particular, it was also a love expressed to individuals. His love and compassion expre is expressed especially in the peculiar expression of his face, which is rarely captured in Buddhist art. It's a very subtle, very complex, mysterious expression, which is often called a wrathful smile. In the very best images and paintings, you get a little bit near to it. You see, when you look at some of these images and paintings, a joy, a delight, an ecstasy shining forth. It's Guru Padmasambhava's delight at seeing the spiritual potential in others, their potential for Buddhahood, their Buddha seed. His full enlightenment trembles and shakes joyfully with the potential for enlightenment in all of us. And the face is also tender 
and kind when you see really good depictions. There's this deep love and compassion there. A deep love and compassion for all, for us, for all the ignorant actions that overwhelm that Buddha seed, that Buddha seed within us. And the face is too a little fierce. The gaze is penetrating. It's blazing with mindful presence. The gaze seems to see through, look through our stupidity and looks right into us. It's the gaze of the real, of the authentic, implacable and relentless. It's the gaze of the Vajraguru, uh, what Sangharachita describes as the no-nonsense guru who doesn't care what he does to wake us up from our ignorance. This is the quality of Guru Padma's love and compassion. And among the Tibetans, it was fully expressed. He tirelessly gave teachings, public teachings, as well as intimate instruction to his close disciples. He gave initiations. He led retreats for his close disciples. He advised the king. And when King Trisam Detson died, while he was there, he advised his young son, Prince Laje, and ensured the peaceful continuity of the kingdom. He organised the establishment of Buddhism in all kinds of ways. He continued, by the way, to make pacts with powerful gods. There's some amazing passages where, not long before Padmasambhava disappears, where he's doing these sort of deals with these very, very powerful forces. And he's responsive to everyone, not just the high and mighty, but the ordinary people too, whoever he met. And let's, we can have a bit of a flavour of what he could be like from a, a teaching which has come down to us called Pointing the Staff at the Old Man. There was an old illiterate man that stayed near Guru Padmasambhava for a year when he was in retreat. He didn't ask for any teaching, teaching. He didn't receive any teaching. And then one day, he asked Padmasambhava for a clear, pithy, direct teaching for an old man nearing his end. And Guru Padmasambhava pointed his walking staff at the old man's heart. And he said this straight away. Listen here, old man. Look into the awakened mind of your own awareness. It has neither form nor colour, neither centre nor edge. At first it has no origin but is empty. Next it has no dwelling place but is empty. At the end it has no destination but is empty. This emptiness is not made of anything and is clear and cognizant. When you see this and recognize it, you know your natural face. You understand the nature of things. You have then seen the nature of mind, resolved the basic state of reality, and cut through doubts about topics of knowledge. Old man, practice the true meaning. Take the practice to heart. Don't mistake words and meaning. Don't part from your friend diligence. Embrace everything with mindfulness. 
Don't indulge in idle talk and pointless gossip. Don't become involved in common aims. Don't disturb yourself with the worry of offspring. Don't excessively crave food and drink. Intend to die an ordinary man. Your life is running out, so be diligent. Practice this instruction for an old man on the verge of death. And Guru Padmasambhava would also talk about the future to his close disciples. He would indicate the ups and downs of Buddhism in Tibet, the ups and downs of the Tibetan nation, showing how the Sangsara, the wheel of birth and death, the wheel of gain and loss, would continue. Of course, it does. It just goes on and on, on and on. And how, through it all, Padmasambhava said, he shows how the wisdom and compassion of the Buddhas would not cease because the Dharma is firmly established. So there's always the possibility of individual spiritual transformation. If people make the effort, there's always the possibility of coming together as a spiritual community. This was Guru Padmasambhava's great love and compassion. And the Tibetans loved Guru Padmasambhava. Their love was expressed in reverence, respect, faith and devotion. And among his closest disciples, this love became commitment to develop Padmasambhava's qualities within themselves. A commitment to the path with sincerity and intensity, which is, of course, what Guru Padmasambhava wants more than anything. That individuals, that people, develop the qualities he has developed within themselves, within their own lives, wherever they are. And for that development to happen, for the development of those qualities to happen fully, to really happen, the Guru, Guru Padmasambhava, has to give the greatest possible teaching, the highest, the most secret, the most effective teaching of all, a final teaching, in fact. In fact, the most devastating teaching of the Vajra Guru, the no-nonsense Guru, Padmasambhava leaves Tibet. He leaves his disciples. He goes on his way. This is the greatest teaching a teacher can give. To leave his disciples. In a way, to reject his disciples. At the right time. When they are ready. When they are ripe. He has to leave them. He has to leave them on their own. He has to leave them with one another. He has to cut away any lingering, any gross or subtle and not so subtle dependence on the external guru, the external teacher, so that the disciples can fully internalise and realise the qualities of Guru Padmasambhava. And when Padmasambhava leaves his Tibetan disciples, they are completely heartbroken. They use very strong language to describe this. They say they feel orphaned. And they mean it. They feel orphaned. They feel that their spiritual father and mother has gone, has left them. That wonderful, loving, challenging, rich 
presence has gone. That world of wisdom, that ocean of dharma, that refuge has gone. I mean, what must it have been like to have been with someone like Padmasambhava? Like, it's like being with a whole world, I should think. A universe of wisdom and compassion. And in that presence, you just feel uplifted. Everything's heightened. You have a tremendous sense of direction. Everything's clear. You know, even if he might be ticking you off, it doesn't matter. You feel reassured. And then he goes, vanishes. Hence the song of longing of Yeshe Tsogyal. Hence the sighs, the tears, the weeping. Of course, some people will read passages like this in Buddhist texts and say, well, it's not very Buddhist. You know, they shouldn't be so attached. You know, but, but really such people, I think, are emotionally stunted, actually. Only Buddhas can say such things. So many of us haven't really learned to love yet, to love our spiritual friends yet, to be positively emotionally connected to our spiritual friends. But the old texts and histories, though they describe the uh, upset of the Tibetan disciples, they always say that after Guru Padma vanishes into space, into the depths of space, everybody watching from the mountain pass return to their homes, return to their families, return to their monasteries, return to their hermitages, return to their caves, return to their pastures, return to their trading, return to running the country or whatever it was. Each one returned to whatever they, they were doing and returned to their spiritual practice, returned to their meditation, returned to their life of ethics, they returned to their studies, they returned to their life of working for the Dharma for everyone. They returned to their dedicated practice of the Dharma taught to them by Guru Padmasambhava. They may, might feel loss and longing, but life goes on and there is much to do. Now I've been saying that Guru Padmasambhava vanished into the depths of space. Uh, this is not a euphemism for death. According to the old records, Padmasambhava didn't actually die. Instead, he mounted an azure steed that came down from the heavens borne by beautiful goddesses and darkenies. He mounted the azure steed and flew off into the depths of the heavens, vanishing into the space. And they describe watching how he just disappears and disappears, a tiny speck in the distant sky. And he told everyone where he was going. He made a sort of decision at a certain point that the time had come to go somewhere else. He was going, he said, to the southwest, to the copper-coloured island mountain, to the land of the Rakshasas. The Rakshasas, the human flesh-eating ogres. They're not just ordinary flesh-eaters. They absolutely love human flesh, these rakshasas, these ogres. They get a scent of human flesh and they're up for it. They're in there. <laughs> and the rakshasas, Padmasambhava had somehow discovered, presumably on the sort of, you know, the cosmic waves or whatever it is, were threatening to take over the world. 
the human world, these terrible, warlike, flesh-eating demons needed taming and transforming. So for Padmasambhava, the work of transformation continues. It's never-ending. He's done what he needs to do among the Tibetans. They're up and running. So now it's time to go to another land. It's time to go to the land of the flesh eaters. So it's said that he dwells now in a great pagoda-like temple of many stories on the copper-coloured mountain surrounded by the flesh eaters. And Padmasambhava is accompanied by his celestial friends and companions, the Dakars and Darkanis, the male and female skygoers. They're dancing around him and uh, they spend their days transforming the flesh eaters and uh, who are busy, busily trying to devour the world. And at night they spend the time meditating and generally having a good time. The first ever image I saw of Padmasambhava, in fact, was a reproduction of a beautiful large tanker which is in the Victorian Albert Museum. Um, that was in Brighton, in uh, a little hippie shop called Ananda, um, which is still going, but it was very different in those days. And they used to sell these great posters by Tantra Designs. Great, thank you, Tantra Designs. <laughs> and I used to buy these posters and stick them in my bedroom at home. But it's a, it's a really wonderful tanker, and I've seen the original as well. It's a, it's a great, ornate, pagoda-like temple on top of a mountain coming out of the sea. And it's all lovely dark reds and greens and blues. And around the temple in the deep blue space... There are swirling and dancing figures of different colours. And the whole effect is quite riotous, chaotic, is what it looks like, at least at first. And in the centre of the pagoda, there's this small figure in lush robes holding various implements with a staring, ecstatic expression on his face. And he seems to be the centre, the master of, this, of all this chaos. And of course, when you look closer... You see that it's not a chaos. There's a kind of hip, hidden harmony to it all, to all this dancing going on. And this small figure at the centre is its master, its orchestrator. It's made a very, very deep impression on me when I saw this when I was about 16. I was instantly fascinated and just drawn into looking at this figure. And it led me to take up the meditation on Padmasambhava. Padmasambhava on the copper-coloured mountain somewhere in the southwest. Now, some people believe that this copper-coloured mountain is, in fact, the modern west. That when Padmasambhava flew away into space, actually, he was flying on into the future. He was going into space to re-emerge in a very different world from the traditional east, he flew away to re-emerge in the grossly materialistic, non-traditional, industrialised, secularised, atomised West, which is, of course, becoming increasingly globalised. The West here is a, is a kind of symbolic term. It's really the far West, the far Occident of dense materiality, in which the distinctively human 
is being consumed, is being eaten up by the forces of rampant industrialisation, consumerism and all the rest of it. Just to be clear, I'm not saying that the past was better. I'm not saying, for example, that the old Tibet was some wonderful paradise. That's not true, actually. Uh, I'm not indulging in nostalgia. We have so many good things now, which we, we never had in the past. Certainly, uh, we do. We have so many good things. We have so many freedoms. For example, we have the freedom to follow our conscience. It's a really wonderful gift, this, that we can follow our conscience. We can, for example, go on a Buddhist retreat openly without any fear of discrimination and persecution. In some countries, that is not possible. Centuries ago, it wouldn't have been possible in this country. But having said that, in the present world, we do have particular problems. So many. There is, for example, the sense of being overwhelmed. People have a sense of being overwhelmed. Technology, relative wealth, means that there are so many po choices, so many possibilities, and people can often not settle on anything. So there can be a sense, people have a sense, of dissipation. And then there's that sense of being overwhelmed by all the problems around us. Not only our own problems, you know, with the relentless media saturation, this means that we're told about every disaster, every injustice, every terror, everywhere. And then there is the constant threat of impending global catastrophe, environmental catastrophe, economic catastrophe. All this alongside the toil of earning a living and caring for our near and dear ones. You know, with all this pouring in, no wonder people feel increasingly stressed and even depressed. We're told that in Britain that you know, depression levels are going up. More and more people are feeling stressed and feeling depressed. It's just so easy to feel overwhelmed, helpless, depotentiated. The human, the essence of human life, that is our living potential to develop our quintessentially human qualities is being squashed, is being denied, is being ignored. Our longing to make more of ourselves, to uncover the deep mysteries of life, can so often be dismissed as a dream, a fancy, a waste of time. No wonder people feel depressed. They feel that their energy is blocked, trapped, held down. No wonder the flesh eaters walk the world. Well, we've got to fight all of this. We've got to fight for what life is really for. We have to fight for the distinctively human. We have to fight for the essence of life. You know, actually it could be that life's going really well for us. Great. I'm pleased. You know, let's, let's not get depressed if things are going really well. Be happy. But, you know, even then, deeper down, we can have a dissatisfaction. Well, that's the essence of life. Calling out. It's said that Guru Padmasambhava shines and blazes ever more brightly in difficult and dangerous and dark times. The more difficult, whether it's personal or collective, whether it's inside or outside, 
wherever the flesh eaters are, the brighter Padmasambhava shines, the more he greens. When I used to live in Bombay, which is a very tough uh, modern city with wonderful people, I may add, in the evenings I used to travel with my Indian Buddhist friends at the height of the rush hour to some distant part of the city, a slum, a tenement block, whatever, to teach Buddhism, to practice meditation. Because there's thousands and thousands of, of Buddhists in Bombay. And uh, we would stand, the group of us, you know, we were, a, we were a really good little sangha, really tight little sangha. We'd stand by the roadside waiting for the battered old bus, uh, a best bust, B-E-S-T, um, with cars and rickshaws roaring past. Uh, we, we, where we stayed was on the main highway going out to the airport. And the air would be thick with black exhaust and the dense smoke of cooking fires from the slums. And there'd be the stench of a thick black open sewer. And there'd be so many people coming, coming and going, tired and strained in the chaos, this chaos of a newly industrialised city. And suddenly, there is a moment, there's a moment, there's a moment in India, there's a moment in Bombay, as the sun sets, when everything is red, or a deep pink. Everything becomes bathed in a kind of thick red glow. And with that, there comes a kind of rupture in time. I'd be there by the roadside, in the midst of a filthy, degraded modern city, and I'd be somewhere else as well. This land is called the highest, the land of bliss, the great paradise, neither at the centre nor, from, or, nor away from it, the womb of eternity. Guru Padmasambhava, approach and bless me, understanding that there is neither division between us, nor coming nor going. Raise my heart as the glorious copper-red mountain. Clear the confusion caused for a time by the sundering of you and me. You are the father who took the vow that you would not leave us in the darkness. How can you then leave us desolate? This is the age of darkness, and as it sinks down into the night, the strength of your vow increases. Awaken us. Show us the face of your loving kindness and the quality of your awareness. Show us your power. So we need to find Guru Padmasambhava now, wherever we are. He's always there as a possibility, as a potentiality. We need to find the agent of transformation in the midst of this world, in everything we do. And we don't wait for those rare, timeless moments of vision. The real devotees and disciples of Padmasambhava regularly invoke him and contemplate him. This is what all these images and paintings are for. They're guides to meditation. But, and this is very important, these images and paintings are not 
Padmasambhava. They are paint on canvas and wood. They are metal. They cannot be Padmasambhava. Padmasambhava is a vast, multidimensional, inconceivable consciousness. And these paintings and images are gateways and doorways into that consciousness. We still love them because of that. We revere them because of that. We worship them because of that, precisely because they are doorways. And it could be, when you go through the door, you will see, you will experience Padmasambhava completely differently. Padmasambhava has actually innumerable forms. It says he has as many forms as the stars in the night sky. And very importantly, Guru Padmasambhava himself said, the guru of times past will not be the guru of future men. As if he was saying, well, I will take new forms. Padmasambhava steps out of the boundaries of Indo-Tibetan culture. He will meet us where we stand, meeting our particular circumstances and conditions. He'll meet our particular inspirations and longings. He'll meet us deep in the ground of our own myths. This doesn't mean that we contrive out of our heads and sentiment new forms of Padmasambhava. It means contemplating the traditional form, the traditional symbols, for they are the clothing that unbounded wisdom and compassion takes. So how do we meditate on Guru Padmasambhava? Well, after settling our minds in a comfortable posture, we first of all cultivate a sense, a mood of renunciation, born of an understanding of the profound impermanence of all things. You can't hold on to anything. They're not a source, nothing is a source of security. So turn away and turn to what is of real value, what is truly reliable. Turn to the path. And then, out of that mood, you cultivate a heartfelt love and compassion for others. You look around at the suffering, that there's so much suffering, the endless suffering of innumerable beings, especially the suffering of those unable to give expression to what is deepest in themselves. So you cultivate a deep desire to develop, to gain enlightenment so that you can truly help others, to help them to activate, to develop what is essential. And then, having done that, you open up to the insubstantial nature of everything. You dissolve everything away into the vast, empty space, which is imagined as a radiant blue sky, blue space, full space. And exploding out of this deep blue space above your head or in front, there is a wonderful ruby-red lotus. And seated on this ruby-red lotus, vivid and clear, but like a rainbow in appearance, is Guru Padmasambhava. And you have a strong and vivid sense of his presence, his vast presence. You feel that he is your teacher, that he's your spiritual friend and guide. You feel that he is your refuge. You regard him as so 
utterly beautiful and meaningful that you just want to give everything imaginatively. You give your possessions, your body, speech, mind, heart, lungs. You give your very being. You see him in his rich robes, his rich Dharma robes, which, and you know that these Dharma robes embody the fact that he's mastered the Dharma completely. You see him holding his Vajra, that golden Vajra, that transforms all those wild and turbulent energies, the gods, the demons, the mother eaters, the flesh eaters. You see him cradling in his left arm the trident, the flaming three-pronged trident with the severed heads of greed, hatred and delusion sort of stacked up as trophies on the staff. And you know that this staff is Padmasambhava's darkening. It's his wisdom lady, his mysterious wisdom lady. It's his inspiration which is constantly with him constantly within him, his constant companion and spiritual friend. And you see clearly his skull cup of the emptiness of everything, but filled with the swirling great bliss nectar. And he's holding the skull cup in the gesture of meditation. So he's never apart from this awareness of the emptiness of everything, never apart from the great bliss that arises from it. You see his red lotus crown cap. You see his long black locks filled with mysteries. You see his deep dark eyes and that wonderfully beguiling expression, that fascinating expression. You see him in a mass of rainbow lights, drops and discs of many colours. You see the whole appearance as alive and vibrant and yet still and calm. And in a mood of renunciation, of being done with all those restricting habits, in a mood of intense, even unbearable longing, the longing that wells up from your deepest heart, the longing of the deepest heart's blood, you call. You call out from that, you call out with that, over and over and over and over. Om Ahum Vajraguru Padmasidhi Om Ahum Vajraguru Padmasidhi Om Ahum Vajraguru Padmasidhi And as you go on, you hear the entire cosmos calling. All beings, all things are calling Om Ahum Vajraguru Padmasidhi It's like a drone like the deep buzzing of bees or like the roar of the tide. And as you call, you feel that you're moving closer. You feel that he's coming closer to you until there is blending, there is mixing, there is union, until there is no separation at all. And then you let go into the space and you open up to the real guru. The guru without form, the guru without inside or outside, the guru without centre or edge. And after dwelling in this state effortlessly for some time, you then dedicate all the positive energy generated 
for the benefit of all beings. And then you arise and go about your day. You bring the qualities gained from your meditation into all activity. You live the myth of Padmasambhava for the benefit of all. A meditation like this is unsustainable if you treat it as some sort of fantasy. It's directly to do with the essential meaning of our life. You live the myth of Padmasambhava for the benefit of all in the land of the flesh eaters. And perhaps you might, throughout the day, recall the Guru, recall his qualities, to refresh you, even remember some of his words, some of his teachings, some of his final teachings to his Tibetan disciples. Words for us, here and now, in the land of the flesh eaters. Now we have attained what is difficult to attain, a precious human body. And while our sense faculties are still intact, we can meet with sublime masters, have the power to choose whatever we want to do. We can enter the Buddha's teachings, practice the sacred dharma, and associate with sangha companions. If at this time we don't apply the teachings that bring liberation and enlightenment, this human body will have gone to waste. Don't return empty-handed after reaching the island of jewels. Don't linger around hungry, having met the inexhaustible treasure. We must cross the ocean while we have the vessel. Don't let the boat of the human body slip away. Now is the time to separate samsara from nirvana. Joyfully exert yourself in practice. Now is the dividing point between happiness and misery. Don't arrange your own disaster. Now is the time when the roads leading up and down separate. Don't jump into the abyss. Now is the time for showing the difference between being wise or stupid. Now is the time to create lasting virtue. Now is the time to become the enlightened man. Joyfully exert yourself in spiritual practice. Now is the time when a single year of perseverance brings all happiness. Remain constant in Dharma practice.